When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. All right, sports fans, Podcast One has two great new shows for you to check out. Seven-time NBA champ Robert Ori is bringing big guests and great NBA commentary on the Big Shot Bob Pod. The Brooklyn Nets remind me of Oklahoma Sooner football, and we got to have to outscore you every time, and that's what the Brooklyn Nets are. Hey, you got Steve Nash at the helm. You got Dan Tony. They ain't thinking about no defense. And Eric Bowling and Brett Favre come together for Bowling with Favre. Everything from sports to politics to business and culture. Any uh, insight on what Aaron plans to do in, in Green Bay? What I read into his comments were simply frustration. Nothing more than that. Subscribe now to the Big Shot Bob Pod and Bowling with Favre on the Podcast One app, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review the shows on Apple for your chance to be featured. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode, especially because it is an awesome two-parter with the great Jack McCallum on the Redeem team and NBA Tears with Matt Moore. First segment is with Jack McCallum, famed author of Seven Seconds or Less. He wrote a wonderful book on the Dream Team, also wrote Golden Days, and has been working on, a, first of all, a podcast on the Dream Team, and now a current project with J.A. Adande on the Redeem Team. It is a 10-episode podcast series, and that is the focus of my conversation with Jack McCallum. Conversation runs about 25 minutes, and then I will talk about that and then preview the conversation with Matt Moore. But first, Jack McCallum on the Redeem Team. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I think the place that I want to start here is that you you have projects that you go into in such great depth and breadth, and that requires a different level of commitment when you choose to focus on a subject, whether that's the Seven Seconds of Lost Sons or the Dream Team or now the Redeem Team. And so I'm interested in what, what drew you to this team as being the foundation of a project. Well, I think it was because it's, you know, I, I don't know whether it would have come into my mind, uh, Danny, if not for the Dream Team, but the Dream Team tapes that I did last year was very successful uh, for the for very one, one very simple reason. It was the Dream Team. <laughs> and people, uh, people like to hear about them. And I just started thinking about, you know, how much, how obscured kind of the other Olympic teams are. Uh, in comparison to them, that I, you know, '96 was another great team. They, nobody can hardly remember in Atlanta. 2000, we almost lost to Lithuania. You know, uh, 2004, we end up getting the bronze medal. So I didn't. Uh, it, it occurred to me how far our international basketball fortunes had come, and I didn't really remember the whole story myself about how they got recommitted. 
I mean, I knew most of it, obviously, but uh, I didn't know, I didn't remember specifically how they got recommitted to fire up this kind of Krzyzewski juggernaut that won in 08, 12, and 16. So I thought they were a worthy team that in the depths and breadth of Dream Team hype, and believe me, I've done more than my share of that, <laughs> that everybody else kind of gets lost, and I didn't think they should be that lost. Yeah, it, it was something that, like, the Redeem team for myself, like, I, I didn't really get into basketball. I was, in 04, I was kind of getting there. I was late I was late to the train. I was in college at the time, and I, which is later than most people who cover the sport. And I remember, you know, I liked the Olympics. I would watch everything like that, that, that the 04 team did really feel like a disappointment. And it was, you know, a lot of people, as you said, turned it down. And then the struggles that they had getting blown out by Puerto Rico in the first game, and then losing to Argentina in the in the semis and then eventually getting the bronze and I had forgotten I remembered all of that of course but I had forgotten about the struggles that team USA had in FIBA tournaments in 2006 which was also this context of like the US really hadn't won anything big in a long time and so I think that's presumably a part of what led the drumbeat towards revitalizing the program yeah I mean you need I mean Probably the lowest. Well, 2004 was the lowest point because it's the Olympics. Yeah. In 2002, the World Championships in Indianapolis, we finished sixth. <laughs> you know, we we were in sixth place, and it, I don't think you know. I'm not smart enough to have known. I remember in 2003, the Olympic qualifier, they went to Puerto Rico. They just by chance had this great team: McGrady, Iverson, Duncan played his butt off. Vince Carter and Ray Allen came off the bench for God's sake, you know. So that's the first time I remember writing a story. Said, "Hey, we need a program. You know, we need. It's not doing it anymore to just get. Hey, this guy, this guy, this guy. You need somebody to lead it. And then 2004 proved it. So you sort of need to go down to the depth." before you can come back up. And the challenge now, Danny, I think is the same thing. We've now won three straight Olympics, that is. And what, you know, LeBron's, I don't know whether he's going to play KD. has had so many injuries. Steph doesn't seem that interested. So what, you know, the challenge now, if there is an Olympics in 21, is really a big challenge commensurate with what the, with what the Redeem team faced back in 08. Yeah, or it, it might end up being commensurate to what the 04 team faced. They just didn't know it at the time. Like that, that is the, 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 it might be the precursor in that respect. And it is really interesting to think about how that ebbs and flows. And a very practical consideration of it is just how, how talent works through the program. And so we, we are at a moment now, which I think we've been at other, at other points in time. 04 is probably the one that leads in my mind where a lot of the best players for the United States have already had their Olympic moment, have already had their time. And that isn't, there are some people who love that and want to continue doing it forever and more power to them. I think that that's great for everybody involved. But I totally understand if somebody has already done that and wants, wants something else, wants their summer. Some of these players don't have a lot of breaks. And so you, it gets into these ebbs and flows where you have this talented group that has had this success that they don't have anything to prove. They've, they've won their gold medals. And maybe the next group isn't quite ready to take the mantle yet. Yeah, well, that's kind of the 04 team was kind of, you know, in the words of, I think when Carmelo talks about it in our podcast, you know, sort of thrown together. And th- three of the people on that team were uh, LeBron, Wade, and Carmelo. Now you talk about three 
you know, Hall of Fame players, and they all described to varying degrees how they weren't ready for this. So somebody told me something interesting, which is the key to going forward for us in international basketball is Zion interested. Mm -hmm. You know, you need, the dream team needed, you know, things were going along and nobody actually knew who the hell was going to play. Okay, Magic said, hey, man, I'm in. So now you move back up to 05 when Jerry Colangelo asked for this commitment leading up to 2008. LeBron says, I'm in. Kobe had some things going on, but he said, to the best of my ability, I'm in. D. Wade said, I'm in. Carmelo said, I'm in. So that kind of needs this charge right now. And maybe that guy, you know, it could be Donovan Mitchell. I mean, the way he's playing this year. And he was the stalwart on the 2019 team in the summer, which I can't even remember where we finished (laughs) (laughs) to tell you what the the problem was. But uh, it's going to need that young generation to, as you said, Kind of prioritize this. Make it important again. Let me get my medal. Let me let me hear how important this moment was to all these mortals before me. Yeah, and and that is a distinct challenge, and it's it's a fundamentally different commitment than what players do for the NBA, and and they have different feelings there, and and also it depends on how well their team is playing. You know, I remember. The, like I, I'm closest geographically to the Warriors, and they've talked at various moments in time about how for all the those years in a row, they their playoffs went all the way into June, and so that it would that would create a very real challenge. You know, you don't get much time off. The things ramp up very quickly, and when you are expected to have one of the best records and everything else, that can go, and so that can lead itself sometimes to talented players that aren't in those situations yet being more enthusiastic about it. Zion is an interesting test case there. John Morant is, of course, as well. And I'm interested in in where that's going to go. But for me, thinking about like when I heard about you doing a Redeem Team project, another element of it that I think of, you know, as somebody who's been focused on transactions and the league and everything for basically that entire time and, and everything since, is the eventual ramifications of the Redeem team and how much of the narrative is done after the fact and everything else, but Chris Bosh, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade were all on the 2008 Redeem team and then all just so happened to be NBA teammates two years later. Yeah, it's one of the the two teams that we started out with, J.A. Adande, who I'm doing the podcast with, and I, you know, two things we we, uh, uh, lighted on was number one, and this was J.A.'s idea, and the reason I wanted him to do the podcast with me was he covered Kobe um, very, very, very closely for like 19 of his 20 years. Jay was either with the LA Times as the beat guy sometimes or with ESPN. So the journey of Kobe, which we're kind of tracing in this podcast, sort of, you know, follows the Redeem team. It was kind of like ups and downs and ups and downs and then ultimate victory. And it's kind of a story of Kobe becoming like one of the guys, you know, becoming uh, for the maybe the only time in his career that he really embraced being like part of a team. And it's it's very interesting. We, we talk a lot about that in the podcast, that how he gradually came around. He came in just like Kobe does. I'm the sheriff. <laughs> I'm the lone wolf sheriff. You can come with me or not, but I'm going to be out there shooting at 6 a.m. and I'm going to be eating my dinner alone 
and, uh, you know, don't bother me. And he kind of ended up being like, you know, one of the guys, even though he played like Kobe. That was number one thing. The other one, number two, was what you just said. Was this the creation of the super team? Was this the genesis of the super team? And uh, we couldn't get LeBron. Dwayne Wade is doing his own documentary about, uh, about the Redeem team. At least he was scheduled to. But we talked at length to Carmelo Anthony and uh, and, uh, and Chris Bosh. Uh, both of them were great. And to a certain extent, they all said, no, we didn't plan. You know, we weren't over in a side room going, uh, hey, someday we should all come to Miami and play together. But there is little doubt that this idea of athlete empowerment, um, that we can make our own decisions, we can talk politically. There is absolutely no question that the seeds of that were back in 2008 when LeBron, Carmelo, uh, Bosch, Chris Paul, all those guys kind of got together and saw what their collective power was. But as Chris Bosch said, I was in Toronto. Was I going to get LeBron to come up there? (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. But this idea of we are one, we are, we have a voice. It was really uh, cemented during those days of the uh, Redeem team. And what's so fascinating thinking about, I mean, LeBron, remember, this is 08. He had already played in, in 2004, and he is still a arguably the dominant force in the NBA. 13 years later, is that part of this team, the Redeem team, as an inflection point for for this incredibly influential group of players that are still shaping the league today. I mean, Chris Paul with the Players Association, LeBron and everything that he does. Carmelo is, is impactful. Dwayne Wade, of course, now retired, but still changing a lot. And I, I think that it is always really interesting to, to see not only like because you it's reading tea leaves and as you said it might not be that they all you know planned it at that point but it built relationships and those relationships ended up mattering that is my current theory of the case there but also how those players saw it affecting themselves because you know that that is an important part of the story is just you know as you said finding finding their voice and establishing themselves you know in in the larger community of star star basketball players and stars in this world no question and i you know even though we're doing the 2008 team i think one of the most extraordinary coaching jobs in and we kind of forget about it okay it was one thing to win in 08 we we by then we had realized how good the world was that in the gold medal game of 08. Okay. Yeah. You put, uh, you know, you put LeBron, uh, Kobe, uh, Dwight Howard, Jay kid, um, Carmelo out there, you know, and bring D Wade off the bench. Bain's trotting out five NBA players also. Right now. Krzyzewski and Jerry Colangelo through the power of something. They keep that team together for two more Olympics. Yeah. And that is really, um, now not everybody, you know, Kobe didn't play in 16. K, uh, KD came, invo- uh, came involved and became a really, really, really important foundational point. But basically those, you know, guys led by LeBron. And the other thing, Danny, we were talking in the, uh, we had one of the episodes was uh, dedicated to LeBron. So we're talking about the 2003 draft which was an amazing draft. LeBron won, uh, Carmelo number three, Chris Bosh number four, Dwayne Wade number five. That's one third of the Redeem team. We all remember who number two was. Darko Milicic, you know, went to, yep. <laughs> went to the Pistons. Anyway, this is 2003. We're now in 2021. LeBron 
is still, I'll leave it to you to decide if he's the best player in the league, but he's either the best player, the second best player, or the third best player. Extraordinary. Chris Bosch has gone from the game. Uh, Carmelo's still, you know, Carmelo's still playing and had kind of a, a mini revival. But boy, you you look at that draft and you realize LeBron's still not only playing, but playing at this kind of level. It really is uh, extraordinary, that guy. And what he's meant, obviously, to the NBA, but to this national team program. But he won't be there in the uh, summer of 21. I, I don't expect him to be, no. And and I think that the other important element of in terms of the broader Team USA of LeBron and, and Kobe to the lesser extent of, of those guys and Carmelo sticking around is that it gave the U.S. a margin for error. And as you said, the world was so strong. I mean, that Argentina team in 2012 and around that time period was incredibly good. And then the U.S. got threatened a bunch of times in 16. I mean, there are a couple times in the, in the in the preliminary rounds and then in the knockout and yeah, maybe they could have won without LeBron or some of these other guys. But also maybe, as you said before, there there are these ripple effects of the top players buying in. Maybe that makes guys more interested in playing and being a part of it. It also makes it more likely that you're not going to have an 0-4 situation where you're remembered more for not winning because that, that is the more infamous thing there. And so... I think it is really it is really notable to think about how much that buy-in meant for the for the for the future in that term period of USA basketball. Yeah, and they're going to need that inflection point again. You know, part of 2008 when uh, part of the 2008 Redeem team when Jerry Colangelo, who we referred to as the Godfather in the podcast, and we're always careful to play Godfather music underneath every time <laughs> we talk about Jerry, um, was that. In the case of LeBron, Carmelo and D. Wade, very obviously, there was a revenge motive for 2004. I mean, they were really, uh, you know, embarrassed, uh, even though um, they weren't they shouldn't have been counted on to the degree they were. You know, they were not very impactful players in that Olympics. So they said every time there, there always has to be a really a real motivating factor to get guys to really buy in. The dream team, it was obvious. It was new. Uh, we're not going to worry about losing. It's going to increase our brand. In the case of Magic and Larry, it was sort of, this is the grand climax of our career. In the case of Charles, uh, Drexler, Stock, Malone, those kind of guys, they were still at the midpoint when, hey, this is, uh, you know, we're still in top shape. Uh, this is going to be a great feather in the cap. So, you know, it's a tough job for Greg Popovich uh, this summer, particularly, you know, the, everything's so diffuse, you know, the way the world is. We don't know, are you going to be able to practice the same way? Are we going to get together for team meetings the same way? Are the Olympics even going to be held? You know, so the world, uh, the team in 21, if there's an Olympics, uh, really has a big challenge uh, on its hands. And I feel bad if Greg Popovich, who's been a loyal, you know, he was the assistant on the 0-4 team to Larry Brown, probably should have been coaching it. He lost out the head coaching. I don't want to call it bid because they didn't campaign for it. But it's another interesting episode how Mike Krzyzewski uh, got picked over yeah. Greg Popovich, which is kind of a counterintuitive decision because the idea was we needed uh, pro coaches to coach NBA players. And it turned out that uh, we needed Mike Krzyzewski. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and the Shashevsky part is is fascinating. Also, when you consider the complicated relationship between college coaches and pro players, in terms of like that he had recruited some of them, had presumably not recruited some of them, and I mean, not many of not many of that O four team or the O eight team had gone to Duke, but some had, and I um, Boozer and I think a couple others, and but that. It, I, I think in some ways that opened it opened some doors just because you think about the complicated relationships that NBA players have with NBA coaches. I think that having somebody who's kind of separate from that system, it, it, it changes the dynamic. And I think you could argue that it, it closed fewer doors in terms of who was willing to participate. Though in 08, I'm not sure that was as big a deal because you talked about all the guys that wanted revenge. Yeah, I, I was so... No, you're right. And I didn't see that. I was so ingrained to the idea because I was covering the league back in... Uh, when when FIBA allowed uh, NBA players to play in 1990, the ruling came down. Then 91, we started to think about things. Well, the, the the supposition was we could only get NBA players to coach these guys. Michael Jordan's not going to listen to anybody. Barkley's going to listen to a couple. So Chuck Daly was named the coach. Well, I hadn't thought of what you just said. And Jim Beheim, one of the first guys we talked to for the podcast, uh, for the Redeem Team podcast, he said, oh, I think it's clear that NBA players have more antagonism built in gripes, memories, bad feelings uh, about another NBA coach. And Mike came in with uh, Krzyzewski, came in with kind of a clean slate. Now, I think that's true. However, the group of college coaches that could do that is very small. Yes. (laughs) Who have that built-in gravitas right away. And that that subset may, in fact, consist of Mike Krzyzewski, and back in 05, you know, take your guess also. I, I, Bill Self, I, I really don't know. But there was not very many people in it. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, something I wanted to, to ask you before we get out here is, is there anything as you've been putting this together that has really surprised you or that you appreciate more with the passage of time since the 08 team? I think, and it was the same way with the Dream Team. Uh, and, and if I was going to talk to any young players, if it was Zion Williamson, and they have no reason to talk to me, but if somebody was going to talk to them about the importance of this, and that is how seminal this experience was. These guys have won, and it was the same thing with talking to the Dream, guy, dream Team guys. It's always hard to get them. You know, how, how long does it take to arrange to get an interview with somebody? And then we start interviewing them. They cannot stop talking. I'm telling you, Carmelo gave us an hour. I think he would have kept on going by the time Chris Bosch, Jay Kidd, the same thing. Uh, how seminal this moment was of competing for your country. And it was the same way when I talked to all the Dream Teamers who were notoriously by this time, I'm talking about for the book, Yeah, back in 2010. This is 18 years later. They're busy. They're running teams. They're coaching teams. They're billion-dollar businessmen. Uh, it's hard to get them. And then you sit down, and the memories of them start pouring out. And all of them say the same thing, that this experience was number one in whatever they've done. And that seems to be a constant theme, that if that could be impressed upon the best players in the game today, that you will not regret this, even though it seems like, God, I played till June, 
my knee is hurting. You know, I haven't seen my girlfriend. I haven't seen my wife. I haven't gone to the beach. Uh, if they would get the feeling that all these guys had playing, then that was reinforced both with the Dream Team experience and with these guys. Well, and not to go down a rabbit hole because we don't have time for it, but that also might be what fuels the modern super team is that these players get the experience of, oh, this is what it's like to play with great players, not for an all-star game, but for weeks at a time. And hey, this guy's really fun to play with. I really get along well. Maybe we should try to make this happen. And as players have gained more agency, LeBron being integral in that, Chris Paul and many others too, that now that is a more real possibility that you could argue the 08 team kind of led into that ramp, that happening more broadly and shaping the modern NBA. And no question, you know, these guys, Kevin McHale told me something very interesting. There's five or six little things I learned along the way that I keep going back to. And one of them, I was talking to McHale one day, and I was talking about how it never seemed to me that Larry gave him enough respect. You know, Larry was had little snipes once in a while at Kevin, you know, and once in a while, well, we got to get Kevin to play harder. And McHale told me, he said, you got to understand how it is for these guys like Bird, Magic. Now, he wasn't talking about, you know, Kobe and LeBron then because he didn't know him. But as it went on, Kobe, LeBron, KD, you take each guy on their individual. Carmelo, even though he's not been on championship team, every night they go out there, it's on them. That That's, that's who the target is on. And that is a lot of pressure that you really can't see. And so when these guys get into an environment where the game just sort of come so easy to them because guys are reacting to to things that their teammates should be reacting to, but they're not superstars. And I remember John Stockton, the least person to give you some kind of romantic expression. You know, John is talking about this and he went, you know, it was basketball heaven. It was like mm-hmm. poetry. It was like, wait, I'm coming over here. They know that pass is coming diagonally to me. And he's not throwing it, you know, to Greg Ostertag. You know, he's throwing it to David Robinson or something. So that experience of, and you alluded to it, playing with guys that are at your level every night, and it never became, let's see who's best, which is what we thought was going to be the problem. They're going to be hogging the ball for each other. It's completely the opposite. It's completely, let me see how I can blend. Let me show you how I can blend with the other good players. Now, LeBron's always been that kind of a player, you know, but Jordan hasn't. Uh, some other guys haven't. But on those Olympic teams, that's one of the things they that, that they enjoyed the most and will remember for the rest of their life. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It has been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks again to Jack McCallum for taking the time to come on. You can listen to the latest season of the Dream Team tapes, which is focusing on the Redeem Team, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, everybody else we just discussed. You can check that out. You can also read his books, including Seven Seconds or Less, The Dream Team, and Golden Days. And you can also follow Jack McCallum on Twitter at McCallum12, M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M, and then the number 12. Such an honor to have him on. Really enjoyed the conversation. And part two of this podcast is what is normally its own podcast, and that is the Awesome Tears project that I do with Matt Moore. This iteration is focused on margin of margin for error is probably the best way to put it. I will Matt explains it in depth and then we talk about it in the early part of the podcast, but a lot of great stuff here and always a clarifying and enlightening conversation for me. And here it is. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love coming on with you every single time, Danny. 
as is often the case, I think the place to start with this is I give you the criteria, and then I I, um, I, I give you the opportunity to choose the criteria. And so, um, as you as you explained it to me, do you want to say what the ones what what we're using for this time? Yeah. So we've done this enough times now to where you start to want to do something different rather than just like who's the best team, who has the best chance to win the title. And so we've we've changed it up and done highest ceiling. This is one I oftentimes think about, which is like how much of a room for error do you have? Which is uh, throughout the course of the regular season, game by game, and also into the playoffs and through the postseason, how much do you need to go right and how much can you afford to go wrong? Because oftentimes that does wind up having a big impact on the outcome. The Warriors were the team that had the largest room for error of any team in NBA history, even, I think, those mid-90s Bulls. If you want to argue the mid-90s Bulls were better, I don't begrudge you at all for that. But the Warriors undoubtedly could just simply beat you in so many ways and because of their shooting prowess had such a wide gap in what they could afford to have happen. So they could have so much go wrong and still be able to find a way to win because they were so talented and so good on both ends versus you have other teams and like facing those teams. The Rockets were in a situation where they couldn't really afford much to go wrong in 2018. And obviously Chris Paul's injury was the one thing that they couldn't afford at all. When they got to that point, when they were up three, uh, to two, you know, they'd had a lot go right in their direction. They had one blowout game, but other than that, they played well. They got good contributions. The Warriors were falling into the trap that they'd set with their ISO play and the switching. But then Chris Paul happens, and they couldn't afford that. Now, that's a big, big, big injury that shifts your room for error. But this is kind of what I mean in terms of on a night-to-night basis, how much do you need to go right? And if things start to go wrong, how much can go wrong and you can still win versus most opponents? Yeah, and I, I've actually filled out the tiers twice for this one because I kind of interpreted it two different ways. I think I'm going to go with the second one because the first one, I scaled it based on kind of like, I scaled it based on expectations. And so the idea there mm. was basically, okay, that there is, so I'll use the Utah Jazz as an example here. The Jazz have been the best team in the regular season. For them, in, in the, to win a regular season game, like this, this threshold is very different than to win a conference finals game or a or an NBA finals. So I originally I'm like, oh, let's scale it on that. And that is that is an interesting exercise. And I'll probably periodically reference that list. But then what I went to is I'm like, it felt more in the spirit of what you were getting at to to think of it more holistically that you don't you, you consider that a little bit like obviously the Charlotte Hornets aren't playing for the same thing as the Lakers. So right. you want you want some adjustment there. But it is still it is still a way of kind of thinking about, you know, like kind of a an average game. And then you can because generally speaking, there are some exceptions. The Jazz are one of them where I think that these where changing the thresholds changes the standard a little bit. But generally speaking, I think that's a fair way to think about it. Well, here, here's a, using the Hornets. Like, here's a good example of it. <clears throat> Let's say the Hornets made an unexpected run. OK, they just they shot like some team just absolutely got completely decimated by injuries or scandal or something complete upset nobody saw it coming the hornets wind up getting out of the first round and the second round they face the milwaukee bucks okay how much has to go wrong for milwaukee to lose to charlotte and how much has to go right and how little has to go wrong for charlotte to beat the bucks like that's a little bit of what i'm talking about here yeah in terms of your room for error so you know and some of this applies to to not only <clears throat> you know what can go wrong for you which is your error, but also like how much do you have to go right? Like even if it's like, well, you didn't have anything go wrong, but none of the things that you needed to do, you did. Your room for error, your error manifested itself and you just didn't shoot well. You just didn't shoot well from three, those kind of things. 
and, and that winds up being the differential. So that 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 I think is a good way to kind of contrast it. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. So um, my tier one kind of in, in in either circumstance was was two teams, and that's the two LA teams still, the Lakers and the Clippers. And I'll, I'll say one other caveat that I put on here was I I you said at full at reasonably full strength. Assuming the injuries that we kind of excluding injuries that are not excluding, but you know, with the carve out for injuries that we already know. So, like for example, I'm not going to say if Markel Fultz and Jonathan Isaac were healthy or Spencer Dinwiddie because we know they're not. Like that is something fundamentally different than Anthony Davis, let's say. Because like yeah, if the Lakers were playing as they were for part of the late part of the first half without Anthony Davis and Dennis Schroeder, they're a much more beatable team. But in their expected value kind of form, they can. There's a lot that can go wrong for them, and they could still win with their strong defense and their their offense. I agree with that. So I think I don't have the Clippers in the top tier. That's fair. Do you have anybody else uh, with I the Lakers? Two, I have two teams in the top tier. I have the Lakers, and this top tier is referred to as all the room in the world. They have all the room in the world for error. And the second team, actually, quite surprisingly, is the Brooklyn Nets. I have no opposition to that. I have the Nets at the top of my next one, and their defense has been much better. So, like, the idea that that was, that's all, I mean, because here, this, I wanted to talk about this with you. This is one of the things I'm like, okay, I want to talk about this with Matt. It's been more conceptual just because their three best guys haven't been healthy and available at the same time very much. I think there is an argument to be made that this Nets team, as constructed right now, has the most room for error on the offensive end alone of any team in NBA history. I can see how you get there. I think in a playoff environment, I think you're right. I think you're probably right in a playoff environment. Um, the reason I think I'll, I'll go with you on the playoff environment is we saw the switch really disrupt the Warriors because the Warriors couldn't run all of the relocation stuff that they wanted to do. They couldn't run all of like the complicated mechanisms. Like the Warriors' offense ground down the way that a lot of offenses, great offenses, tend to in the postseason because <clears throat> guys stay with you tighter. Um, they close out harder. There's more switch. All of those things. Well, and you can do more contact that isn't that isn't going to be subject to the officials mm, so yeah, ball and player point. movement based systems like this is something that cleveland did so well against the warriors in their various configurations as the Cavs dealt with injuries and departures and everything else was knowing that you can get away with more and that but with this nets team okay like you're gonna do that great then you have some of the greatest isolation players around going at it and they and you can create all these different things and that's why i think all the other big part that this nets team has over let's say those warriors teams or or many others that you can consider is having three high-end creators that i think we've seen this to harden's immense credit during some of this time when durant's been out is that each of these guys by themselves is capable of like you can create an offense around them with yes. constitu- with appropriate offense surrounding talent and they have appropriate surrounding talent on this team and then when you put two of them together it still works and when you put three of them together it still works so the idea being like Harden and DeAndre Jordan like you can build a good offense they already have around those around those two, you know like around an action involving those two guys and that is something like those Warriors teams didn't have that's something the Showtime Lakers didn't have and various other modern ones or like you want to say well, last year's Dallas team had the best offensive rating. They couldn't do that at all. Like they were the, one of the most heliocentric teams ever. And so I think that it is an unusual advantage and I want to appreciate it as such. Yeah, and I think for me, a lot of it just comes down to they can just simply isolate. And if the playoffs are so often defined by tough buckets, those guys can all get them one-on-one. If they just put Harden in isolation and they put KD and Kyrie on opposite sides of the floor and on the wings, who are you sending to help? 
you know, especially if they if they play small ball with Jeff Green or Blake Griffin now, you know, a little bit spread out a little bit more, then who are you bringing to help? Because whoever you bring is now Harden is going to find those guys and they're going to have an advantage. So I agree. The counter argument to this is that this is the most hilarious thing trend this season for me. The Brooklyn Nets this season against teams that are under 500 are eight and nine. Shout out to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Shout out to the Cleveland Cavaliers. They are seven and ten against the spread against those teams as well. Uh, quite simply, they struggle versus teams that are bad. Now they started to get that together a little bit more. They figured out a lot of that stuff with Harden. After Harden and when Durant went down, they won four of five uh, versus teams under five hundred versus those teams. They got wins versus the Kings twice. They beat the Magic uh, and they beat the Rockets. And one of those games, their loss was to the Mavericks, who I think we would both agree are probably going to end up as a better, um, yes, a better team than five hundred. So. That, I think, is, is where that comes out as. They do have a bad defense, but I also have started to rethink—I I want to talk to you about this. I've started to rethink a lot of my analysis of, of defense in the modern NBA. And what I've kind of come to the conclusion of is, you know, defense wins championships. I still think that that's true, but the trick is it's not about is your defense good or not. It's do you have the capability to solve the problem in front of you. Mm-hmm. If your offense is good enough— you can make the finals. And the challenges along the way are predicated by, do you have the personnel to be able to counter what they're going to throw at you? Can you, if you're facing a team where you need to switch, can you switch? If you're facing a team where you need to drop and dare them to shoot, can you do that and keep them from the rim? Uh, Can you blitz and get the ball out of the primary ball handler's hand and do that effectively? Those different types of, the ability to solve different types of problems are key, I think, rather than the overall strength of the defense. And I think ultimately that Brooklyn has enough guys with enough versatility and so much offense that they should be fine there. I think that there's a lot of merit to that argument. I've been trying to process the same thing. And the way that I've been thinking about it over the last couple months has been defense can help win championships, but also like it can lose them too, in the sense that like you have to meet a very basic threshold. And if you can't, you know, like it getting a getting two straight stops in a like basically preventing two easy shots in key situations, you know, like that's sort of a really low bar. Like if you're tissue paper, then it's going to be a big problem. And that, and you're putting it as a higher threshold against a really good team, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes that leads to the, the problems of, you know, how you're going to defend Kawhi, you're going to defend LeBron, some of that kind of stuff. But I think that you're on to something. And interestingly, I will use the example of a much better defense, and that's last year's Miami Heat team. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you don't have to be amazing at everything, but you have to be basically func- have some functional concept against everything in order to yep. have that really high-end ceiling. And that's that's really what you were getting at. And so like the Heat did it sometimes with zone concepts. They did it sometimes with attacking, you know, different different sorts of different sorts of things and they didn't have to face, you know, that same level of like back to the basket big, though I think they would have handled that well because of how well, you know, in the or in the later rounds, because that's just not, you know, the Celtics don't have that guy. The Lakers AD didn't wasn't wasn't attacking in that way in the playoffs, which is great. That's why AD is so great. Um, so yeah, I think there is some merit to it. Also, it wouldn't stun me to see like then and this comes up with that stat that you were talking about in terms of the Nets playing to the level of their competition that when you get into the playoffs where games are less frequent and opponents are consistently high quality, that the Nets will have a larger switch flip defensively than most teams. I think they will. Ha- I think we've already seen it. Like, I mean, you can go into some of those, some of those terrible mm-hmm. losses they had, um, like that game, that crazy game against the Wizards, which actually they even could have won. It was like, yeah, they they clearly didn't care on defense. Like they weren't they weren't trying right. super hard. Some of that kind of stuff. So I think some of that will be will be tightened up. 
The challenge that I have and why it's tier two for me is is just that I'm not all the way there yet on the defense. I wouldn't. Be, I would actually, in some ways, be surprised if I'm not if I don't have the Nets in tier one at the end of the season. I'm just I'm fundamentally a little bit conservative on things like this, and they've been better. But I wa- I kind of want to see the whole thing before I fully buy it. And so they're the top of my tier two for that exact reason. Um, just a quick stat on the Clippers. Um, I understand, you know, it's, it's been weird that I've consistently been like, you know, believer. It's, it's the concept. Like, this is a team that was built in a lot of ways for, for my ethos of, like, what wins in the modern NBA. Is that <laughs> the Clippers, except for how they collapse and all that, um, the Clippers have, this is Clean the Glasses version of the stat, they have a plus 17.5 net rating when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are both on the floor. It just hasn't happened that much. And yeah. so that when I use the clarification that I did of like, you know, squaring out some of the injuries. And remember, those that those two guys on the floor is no guarantee that they have everybody else that's good on this team because so many other guys. And so the idea for them, and this will come up with the team that I have in Tier 2, is that they're not perfect. Lord knows they're not. But the kind of like the fundamental concept of them makes sense. And I like the thing that has been really, I've been really positive about for the Clippers is that they have a couple different theories defensively on how they can do it. Now they Serge Ibaka, you know, he's, he's better in certain concepts than others, but they can, they can defend well and space the floor, which is an unusual concept. And like, that's been one of my big criticisms of the Bucks in, in some of their iterations is like, you kind of, it's hard to check both boxes. The Lakers with AD at center can of course do that too. They haven't done that as much, but they can, um, so that's my theory with the Clippers is basically that if we're accounting for everything else being stabilizing a little bit for every team, not just for them, but for every team that they kind of sort it out. But I understand why many have less faith in them than I do. Well, it's funny because I mean, you know, I was I was a doubter last year and it paid off uh, for me big time when I bet the Nuggets last year. But what's funny uh, that the, you mentioned this, Danny, is I just put in a bet on the Clippers to win the uh, division. And Where, I am where's the line now? Plus 125. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting was, one. I, yeah, I I thought I missed the window because they dipped into favorite status after the AD injury and when the Lakers started to tumble. But then the Suns made that good run, and so I was able to get the Clippers at at a plus number, which is what I was still looking for. I missed the window on plus two hundred, which I'm sad about. I am still debating taking them as a Western Conference finalist or a, a finals winner um, to win the West. Basically, I, I think I'm still debating it. I still have where's, problems. Where's with, that? Where's that number right now? Uh, it depends on where you shop at. You can get it anywhere. Uh, it's still pretty short is the problem. And I'm thinking about more of just betting it series by series. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I, if I'm going to go there, I want to be able – because the reason I'm, I'm leaning towards series by series uh, is if you look at – like I'm worried again if they face the Nuggets because I still think that they're going to be susceptible to great center play. Sure. I don't even, – even with Ibaka, I st- like I, that doesn't make me feel better. I'm not like – because if you play small versus – versus versus Jokic he's just like, like I'm gonna score over you it just doesn't matter like I'm just gonna score over you and so um I'm still worried about the matchups but there are so few that bother me like I think I'm probably gonna bet the Clippers versus the Lakers in the series like I think that well, I, I think that I think the Clippers will be undervalued in that in that concept too and mm-hmm. there'd be a way to hedge later potentially if you needed to right and so like there's 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 ways to get there um so I'm actually quite high on them the reason I, I really have them in that tier too is because like the, my tier two is is labeled as long as it's not a disaster. So last year the Nuggets that was a disaster. They had a three one lead. They had double digit leads in all three of the final three games. But I'm also not surprised that they lost because they did have like the Montrezl Harrell thing was a limitation. Uh, I think their, their team identity does suffer. 
I, I mostly the intangibles thing really is a problem for me that I am not under the thrall of Kawhi Leonard as good as he is as a basketball player. I don't necessarily trust him to be a leader in key situations. And I do worry about the team fracturing a little bit. They got rattled in that series. They just when they couldn't put Denver away, they got very rattled. And so for me, it's like as long as they don't run it. But here's part of it is the Lakers didn't run into a situation where they had to face adversity right. in the postseason last year. You can talk all the stuff about the Kobe stuff and like that, that's totally understandable. Like the bubble, it was hard on everybody. I get it. Pandemic. I understand. I'm talking about strictly from a basketball sense. They were never really challenged. They rolled over the Blazers. The Rockets were not in a position to challenge them. I thought the Rockets would give them a greater challenge, but they didn't because uh, they were so dominant. The Nuggets series, if AD misses the game two game winner, maybe we see it. Maybe that goes to six and we have to see them actually be pushed a little bit. And how does that team and some of the the, the fringe guys, how do they react in that type of environment? So I don't think the Lakers are, are even with LeBron, are leagues ahead better in this department. Uh, but with the Clippers, I'm always going to have a little bit of reservation on can I really trust them when it gets down to it? By the way, you can still get the Clippers uh, plus 550 to win the title at one book I'm looking at right now. Ooh, uh, and I like plus, that. And 250, which is a pretty good price to win the West. So um, I think so, I'm still going to bet series by series. Why I like why I like the Clippers, the, the title one, is the you, – you say the way I always look at that is conference versus title – is what would I give their odds at if they're good enough to make the finals? And I think mm-hmm. I would have the Clippers over 50% if they make it. There are certain right. certain teams that would be a real challenge, including the Nets, but I think that I would have them as the favorites, knowing what we know. Right, Like, if I if I was given the baseline that the Clippers make the finals, then, because remember, you generally have to be pretty healthy and all these other things. So that, that I always look at those as being really interesting. I remember... Last year, I actually thought that the Bucks title odds were too, were were too strong for that exact reason. That's like, well, if they get in, there are these real challenges, and then you ended up being more right that they didn't even make it that far. But that's that's kind of the logic that I use for both ends. Hey, uh, 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 sorry, I just want to because you got me on on get on betting, and you have to deal with me when this happens. Um, I do have um, a I have a couple of pieces on. I have. The Pacific to face the Atlantic in the finals Ooh. At, at a pretty good number. And I've added twice to – I have Nets-Lakers to to be the finals matchup at plus 375. I got them in, at plus 700 back in preseason. Um, I will likely – this is where I will probably add on is I will add uh, Clippers-Nets as part of my, my betting rotation. That's probably where I'm going to wind up at because I haven't bet that, that specific combination yeah, I also have the uh, Pacific to beat the Atlantic. I got that at plus 320 in preseason. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so I'll, so I'll, I'll lay out I'll my lay out tier, two. tier two. Yeah. Um, so I had the Lakers and Clippers. You obviously have the Clippers. So we have the kind of the trade-off of the Clippers and the Nets, which is totally fine. And the way I described this group was like a little hesitation. And so it was like for, for, for them. So the the Nets are there because it's just still need to see it with their defense. I talked about how much I believe in their offense. Then the other two teams, one of which will probably be a huge prize, one of which will not. One is the Jazz. I mean, they've been the best team in the regular season. I have my, I think they'll be better. You know, they're, this is their best team, in my opinion, in terms of the playoff viability. And then the other one, just because I won't quit them yet until they're healthy, is Miami. Everybody loves the Heat. I'm like the only one that still, you know, I, I just still look at the bubble and I just go, look, is Goran Dragic going to be MVP for another five week stretch? I just, you know, so much of that was because of Dragic. And, yeah. 
Um, you know, they, they've gotten it together. They're not going to be sub 500 team. They're probably not going to miss the playoffs, but I just, I don't know. There's something about Miami that I have not, I, I didn't buy in last year. I bet them versus the Bucks because I didn't like, like, I was just, this is a terrible matchup, right. but I really still think that the Celtics should have won that series, uh, versus Miami. I can't, I just can't quite get there. I have bumped them up to, to tier three. Sure. I had them tier four initially, but I couldn't get there. The as long as it's not a disaster tier for me is the Clippers, the Suns. Yeah, I nearly had them in this tier. The Bucks, because the Bucks, quite honestly, as much as you're like, but they've beaten beaten in the last two playoffs. Like, yeah, because they faced the worst matchup possible. Like facing the Raptors with Fred VanVleet going supernova, and then facing that Heat team was the absolute worst lay that they could have gotten. Like that was the worst like route for for the Bucks imaginable. They're still really good and they're vulnerable, but you do have to be the right type of team to beat them. Uh, the Sixers because of their defense and I think their athleticism and they have enough shooting this year. And then the Jazz. That's where I've I've put those teams. Is like the Jazz is is very interesting because it's basically you know uh, they are at the spot where they're going to be the hunted instead of the hunter. They're going to have a lot of pressure after the first start, the the hot start to the year. They lost three or four going into the All Star break. Um, and then on top of it, you've got if they if you have teams that can make Rudy Gobert beat you offensively, the Jazz are going to have a hard time. Um, but I think the Suns are maybe the most vulnerable, like versatile team in this tier from the West. Uh, it's just them and them, the Clippers and the Jazz. The Suns, I actually think I have the most faith in to be the most versatile come playoff time. Yeah, that's actually something interesting that I've been grappling with. Is if we if we were just narrowing this to the playoffs, I think I I, I might go with you where I'd have the Suns over the Jazz because they're they have versatility on both offense and defense. So the Suns, they have enough front court depth that I think they can run a lot of different theories defensively. Now, not really like necessarily a full switch, especially if they're keeping Devin Booker on, but they can do some different, they can do some different concepts out there. And they, you know, offensively, they have a couple different kind of like loci, you know, like they can run things through CP, they can run things through Booker, they have all these other guys that, that can really thrive within their roles. And they've, I mean, it's stunning to me how, like, one of the, one of the kind of under the radar stories that's going to have, I'm going to have to get resolution on in the second half is whether we want, um, whether we buy the Charge at Center stuff, because it has been completely ridiculous so far. Yeah. And it honestly could be completely ridiculous for the rest of the regular season. It could be ridiculous through the playoffs. Maybe this is just like, it, it just works, you know, like that the things you can see defensively, they have a lot of good defenders in those lineups, depending on which construction Monty Williams gets to use. The offensive theory totally makes sense. The CP and Sharch in particular minutes have been some of my favorite in the entire NBA this entire season. Like just some of those concepts they're running offensively, and it just throws these second unit defenses for a loop. But I'm still a little bit like, okay, I want to, I want to see it a little bit longer. Like that's it's sort of like the Nets defense. I think you could say in that respect, right? Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah. So for me, it, the other hard, the other hard cut here. So I had, oh, I had the Sixers in tier three. I'm their defense. Like I'm pretty much on board, you know, like that's, you know, I, I'm a little bit gun shy from last year, but this is a different coaching staff. This is a different roster. So it's not fair to hold all of those sins against them, but it's more just when it gets down to it in a plotting game offensively, you're not getting any, you know, you're not getting anything in transition. Do I trust it yet? And I'm not all the way there. Like Embiid has been monstrous. He's been effective on post-ups for the last couple of years and everything like that. But I don't think they have enough counters yet, and that's something that's a little I, concerning to me. I think for me this is the question. is If we're talking about room for error here, is if the Sixers are in a series versus the Toronto Raptors, how much room for error does Philly have? 
like if the if the Sixers were in a series versus the Bucks, I think they have little. Right. I don't think they can screw around. If they're versus the Nets, I think they have none. Like they got to play well, or they're right. Lose. And so that's kind of why I ended up with the Sixers in tier three along with the Bucks. Is that mm-hmm. same is that same idea that I didn't think? But you have the Nets in a tier above, so I actually think that's kind of like in some ways it's it's shifting. It's everybody's in kind of the same relative place, but you had the Nets yeah. higher, so that I, I get that. But then right. for, so for me, it's like if the Sixers. And it's funny because they had two really fascinating games. I'm sad they don't play again, the Sixers and the Jazz. Like, those were some of the more fun games this year. And just because of how those specific teams match up with one another. Um, But I'll lay out my Tier 3 because I think we're kind of – we're having half of this conversation. We might as well have the whole thing. So my Tier 3 is Suns, Sixers, Nuggets, Bucks, and Celtics. Celtics, Celtics were the two hardest teams for me to place in this entire thing were the Celtics and the Knicks. We'll talk about them a little bit later. Um, the Celtics being that I kind of didn't think of them as being in either tier, but when I just, I looked at who I had in the other ones, I'm just like, where do they belong more? I'm like, ah, you know, the, the Kemba's getting better. I, they have enough stuff at center that they can kind of figure this out. They also can make a little bit of an upgrade. I felt better with them in tier three than tier four. Yeah. I think for me, my, see my tier three is really short. So there's okay. a gap here, right? Like there's this, the first two tiers where it's like, like the really elite teams, a bunch of teams that they, they can probably that have a wide enough range for error for that they can um, margin for error that they can probably win the title. And then the, this third tier, you get into there's a reasonable range within the outliers. So like for this one, it's like basically if you get hit with a with a, a high frequency of negative outcomes, you're gonna lose. Like if if you better not have uh, your strengths are not gonna outweigh multiple weaknesses. Maybe is a better way to put it. And that's just three teams. That's the Nuggets, the Raptors, and I put the Heat in here begrudgingly, um, based off of what they did last year and how they've been playing recently, and the, the talent level and Jimmy Butler and coaching is part of that too. Um, the Nuggets, I, I think, have a higher capacity because they're often so good. Yes, and the numbers. The numbers with MPJ at four are so good. Well, and their defensive capacity when they actually have guys available is mm-hmm. is, is high. I mean, I don't think they're a high ceiling team, but their floor right. is a lot higher. And and the Nuggets, in some ways, paralleling Miami, we, we I fall back on what we know from before the season because availability has been such a challenge. And I think Denver's lack of availability, like speaking more of national people, like you're, you're obviously more connected with that. You know it so much better. Um, I think that that's been underappreciated is that they've been really shorthanded this year. Yeah, I mean, nobody's, nobody's – there's a conversation about Jamal Murray is particularly bad because um, just you have to be around the team to understand how hurt he is. You have to, like, talk to people to know how hurt he's been this season. That was a big reason why he started off slow. It wasn't that he's unreliable and that he's the same guy that he was two years ago. It's just, like, Jamal Murray was really hurt. Like, he was banged up. And he played through it because that's who Murray is. Um, I think – What's kind of interesting about the Nuggets, though, in this in this context is they're pretty high. One of the reasons that they're not higher and it's hard to place them is they're very good when they have little room for error. Like that's they are a team that is at its best when it's like you would better play well or you're going to lose and go home. That's when they get great. It's not just the three one stuff. We've seen this consistently versus like they were the team that broke Utah's long winning streak. Uh, they beat the Lakers. AD got hurt, but they did beat the Lakers. They beat the Blazers when the Blazers were hottest. They were like they had rattled off a bunch in a row, and the Nuggets handled them comfortably. Like the, they are a team where if you put them in a in a very narrow situation, they kind of thrive in that. Toronto is kind of similar. I think Toronto's ceiling is lower than Denver's, but I do think that their room for error is kind of similar in that. Look, if a lot of things go wrong, it's going to get tough very quickly because they're just not as talented. 
Toronto's an interesting one. I have the I have them in four. I just, I just don't quite trust their offense or their defense enough right now. Like right. The, it, it's when and that's kind of in some ways where my where the line for three and four was for me. It was like, do they have a bedrock? Do they have and and is that bedrock sufficient enough? Like yeah, like I have you know Portland's in my tier four, but it's because but I don't have you know they don't have enough on the other side to to really get there. And so with Toronto, it it wouldn't surprise me. And maybe I'm being too harsh considering how how rough their start was, but especially still trying to figure everything out at center. And and also Toronto, th- some of their problems aren't necessarily fixable in their current iteration. You know, like they, they're... They're a team that can punch above their weight, but only so far. And so that's also where it gets a little bit like, like Nate and I have talked about this in terms of over-unders, that if you really want to feel good about a team's over, you don't necessarily want to be supremely confident that they can go three games over. You want to be, you want to feel like there's a real chance that they can go five to six, you know, like that's sort of the argument because otherwise you should feel a little less bullish. And it's funny because as you know, like I'm using Toronto in this one, I was a firm believer in Toronto's over in terms of that. But if we're, you know, if we're narrowing this to a playoff series, they're, you know, it's, it's in some ways can be similar to the Jazz. But what's different is that the Jazz, like, I think they know exactly who they are offensively and they can make it work. And then defensively, like they have the personnel, the scheme and all that. And there are ways you can take it away, but you get everything else. With the Raptors, I'm just not totally there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I think I have a little bit more faith in, in Toronto based off of, they're just, I, can, I think a lot of it's just like, I, you just can't kill them. Like they're just no matter what you do, they just kind of hang around, and a lot of that's just like Lowry, and then they're just gritty as hell. Yes, and so even if things go wrong for them, they're just like, okay, we're like there were so many things that went wrong in the Boston series, and they still pushed it to seven games. Like I don't know how. Like there were so many things that they were uphill against, and like matchup advantages, the way the Celtics were playing, everything that had happened. And the Raptors just have a capacity to, to kind of find ways to win. And I think that, that that helps offset a little bit of the margin for error in that if you're if, – if, if, even if it's like, well, you're so good that you can overcome the error. If it's just like, oh, that stuff can go wrong and you're just going to scrap out a way, I think that manages some of it. Um, it does. I mean, and being well coached is a huge differentiator here. You know, like yeah. it, it changes it – changes, and like it brings up – how well you can fare, like this was your kind of your Denver point of like Denver is a very good team within that narrow margin for error group. Like some teams are better and worse. Not some of that is personnel too. I mean, Jokic in, yeah. in many ways helps that too. And Jamal Murray's explosive like scoring capacity is another one. And then yeah, so that but that is a it is a fair point, and that is why. Like I could, it wouldn't stun me to feel better about the Raptors than I do right now. And like, I think of them. So my tier four is kind of teams that I'm overall a little shaky on. Um, The Mavericks, the Pacers, the Raptors, and the Blazers. And Dallas, it's, it really is their defense. Like if, I mean, I think that when they've been closer together, I'm not particularly concerned about their offense. And Jalen Brunson's having a nice year coming off the bench and Luca's getting back, you know, he's pretty close to form and everything like that. But their defense has been materially worse to me. And concerningly, it has been worse when they've been healthy than I wanted it to be. Like, so it's not a circumstance like the Clippers where it's like, okay, you know, like, or Miami where it's like when they've been, when they've been together, it's been fine. They just haven't been together much. The Mavericks, especially with Porzingis, like looking a little bit more stone-like, I think that that is, that is a real concern for me that like, 
they could move up, but I'm not really there. And I already talked about the Raptors in this. And the Pacers are another one of those hard teams to place because I think the theory of this Pacers team, especially with Karis LeVert there, is a Tier 3 team. But TJ Warren is out for TBD, and it might be the whole season. They had said that Warren was uh, getting back to practice and that he actually might. Like, I, I have some optimism he's going to be back by the end of the month. If so, he's back by the end of the month, I'll move them into Tier 3. Yeah. So what what tier number was this last one for you? Four. And give me those teams again. Mavericks, Pacers, Raptors, Blazers. Okay. So my fourth one is, this. I call it the standard middle, which is like a nice healthy range between like po- minus two and positive two. Uh, Celtics, Warriors. Okay. Spurs. Mavericks and Pacers. I like you. Like with the Pacers, like this current team is constructed is like a tier five uh, or tier six. Um, them fully healthy, I think, is like a tier two. They were great when they were fully healthy. And I think Karis gives them the boost that they need. But I have no idea when Karis is going to be back. None, none. He may not play this year, and that severely limits what they can do. Like they do not have enough offense without Karis Levert. Even if TJ Warren gets back, they need Levert to stir the drink. And so that that I think is a big problem. Um, I have the Warriors here as I continue to just be like I focus so much more on the positives of the Warriors and the negatives that it seems like everybody else is, which is weird because when they were great, I focus on the negatives more than the positives, um, which says a lot about me. But no, I think- but it, it 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 doesn't it doesn't because I think that part of what you do better than than most people is identifying if there's a if there's gr- you're good at identifying groupthink and plot plugging hope and p- pinning holes in it, which I think is a really useful thing. It's part of why I love our conversation so much is like with the Warriors. And I think the part that, that people are, well, there was a funny one. I didn't include this. So I, I just sent out a tweet. I didn't put any commentary on it about the, basically when Steph and Draymond play together without, with and without Wiseman. Mm-hmm. And the part that I didn't mention in that is I, I, I won't get it exactly right. Cause I'm, I don't have it pulled handy, but since Wiseman came out of the starting lineup, the Warriors are something like fifth in net rating. And basically the idea is that even though they have these very specific flaws that I think are well known, most notably their offense when Stephen Curry is not on the floor, there is a legitimately good team here. It's just that that good team is only available, let's call it 20 to 25 minutes a game right now. I think with me, the thing is, the Wiseman point, is, I think, is very salient, right? Like It, is, it makes a lot of sense. Um, when they've played well, they've played great. Yep. And when they've played terrible, and when they play badly, they've played awful. And so, like, with them, I'm also just searching for if you can just stabilize a little bit. Like, you don't have to be beat the Lakers good. You don't have, like, just don't be lose to the Hornets. You just or, have or, to or, or lose to the Magic. Yeah. Like, just stabilize a little bit. And, I mean, a lot of it is just a very – I mean, I, I just wrote this on a thing for action. Like, I think they're going to make a trade. I just think – I think they're frustrated with – um, I think Andrew Wiggins played really well to start the year. And since then, they're like, we just need a little bit here. Like, we just need – like, Wiggins has to give them so little, and he's not. And I think that that's frustrating them because it's very clear that like, with what Steph, Steph's giving them, they just have to have a little bit of support, and they're going to be fine. And they just haven't gotten it between Oubre and Wiggins. So whether it's Wiggins or Oubre – um, I think they wind up making a trade, and, and that'll be interesting because, like, I think I think if they make a deal, they can actually be, you know, a pretty stabilized, good team. Yeah, I, I think that there's there's definitely an argument in favor of that, especially 
considering like I think we've reached the point now where it's it's fair to say that the Warriors are sound defensively. Like they're they're top ten right now. They're they they can do they can do even more. And then offensively it's the same story that we've known for a long time where like when Curry's on the floor, they're good. And when he's off the floor, they're terrible. And that's the other move that they can make is I, I think about this a lot around the trade deadline and buyout time is is there an easily identifiable fix that the team could reasonably do? And but it's been a blind spot for Bob Myers forever. I've written about it basically since I I don't know since I pretty much started writing is back a point guard. The Warriors have never had a league average offense when Steph Curry's been off the floor any any year that they've that they that it's been the case. And and so like that is a huge problem. But you can get maybe not to league average, but pretty close with a lot of different a lot of different theories, a lot of different guys. And it so I think that you know that that would be to me the way that they would get firmly into tier four, potentially tier three, is if they can shore up some of those things. But you can also make the argument, hey, if they get in, then that'll matter less because Curry and Draymond will be playing more. You can solve a lot of those problems. Um, I'm trying to think. So so I had the Mavs, Pacers, Raptors, and Blazers. Um, are there any of those teams that you haven't placed in a tier yet? Of which ones? Um, Mavericks, Pacers, Raptors, Blazers. Um, predictably, I have not placed the Blazers here. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like, that so John Schumann had the had the stat in his um in in his about how basically how this Blazers the the new look starting five is doing really well. I'm a little bit more skeptical of the way they can work out. Um, but I'm interested in, in you because I mean I'm a Blazers I'm a Blazers skeptic too. But I'm interested in what your logic is. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of this is just like I'm. I'm on the like everyone thinks I'm. A, I'm this huge Blazers hater, which is ridiculous. I love small markets, and I think Dame is awesome, um, etc. But like, I do want to be very skeptical of. I've been skeptical of this team as it's const uh, within its construct really for the last like six years, um, and it's gotten like I'm not a Nurkic guy. I think that if the num- you look at, you look at the numbers, there's reason for that. I think McCollum's great, but I think that you have to have great defenders at three, four, five in order to make it work, and they don't have great defenders at three, four, five. This is the reality. Um, I have them in tier, let's see, one, two, three, four, five with a bunch of other teams. Um, this, this is my thing with, with Portland is that I don't know how else to say this except objectively they have played above their ceiling uh, in that you say like, well, that's a very subjective thing. We have Pythagorean wins. Like we have your uh, point differential versus strength of schedule in which they rank terrible. We have all of these metrics. Their win differential between expected and actual, they have the third highest at 3.2. Cleveland is first at, at they've been four games better, four wins better than, than what they should be because they had a great start. OKC, because they've been clutch as hell, they're 3.5. And then we have Portland at 3.2. Their SRS, which measures uh, straight the schedule versus uh, point differential, is terrible. Yep. Uh, they're 21st in that department. It, does it make sense for them to be better with Enos Cantor starting? No, it does not. That does not make any sense whatsoever. Like, we can be reasonable. Like, I don't think Cantor's terrible. I think there's situations in which he's pretty good. I think also in the regular season, teams don't target him the way that they can, and that's fine. There's just no reason to think that a team that plays Carmelo Anthony and Enos Cantor this many minutes at this point in their careers is a- actually this level of team. I don't believe that. So I think that the Blazers are much closer to 500. I expect them to cool off in the second half of the season and slide into the play-in game as the season goes along. I think that the reason they're in the a lot can go wrong quickly is they're just extremely defensively vulnerable. They tried a new scheme to start the season with playing two on ball, and it was so bad they had to abandon it. A part of that was Cantor. We'll see if they go back to it when Nurkic gets back. But the numbers with Nurkic were bad. Well, um, and if anybody, wants, like, if, if anybody wants to say that the Blazers aren't defensively vulnerable here, I want to go 
go through their their clean the glass defensive ranking each of the last five seasons. 15-16, 20th, then 25th, then 7th, then 16th, then 27th, then 28th so far. Like yep. they have they were they were much better and some of that was a little bit fluky in their best season. And other than that, they've been generally not a good defense. Like that is that is what they are. However, I want to make a correction and this is an important one. We haven't talked about them yet. I move I, I should have and have now moved the Spurs into tier four. And there is a very clear argument and is one of the under the radar stories in the NBA, which is this team makes significantly more sense with Jakob Pertl starting at center. Mm-hmm. Here's here's one stat on that. And yes, there is some shooting luck here. You, you that 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 thought should cross your mind. It is a little, but but it's mostly actually rim shooting luck. It's just unsustainably bad. Um, the Spurs when De, Dejounte Murray and Jakob Pertl play together, which is basically that's the concept of their starting five. Though they played together in other configurations earlier in the season. Plus ten point six net rating, around a league average offense, and one of the league's best defenses. I don't think they're one of the league's best defenses, but I can see them being a very good one, especially when Dejounte Murray is getting every steal imaginable, which he has been during a lot of that time. So even if Maybe the offense, and I think the offense could take a little bit of a step forward. You know, there's been all the availability stuff with with guys like Derek White and 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 trying to figure out how White and Walker and everybody fits together. But if I'm going to say, yeah, totally buy them as around a league average offense and a clearly above average defense, which I do, well then when you consider how good their bench is, then they're a tier four team. Like that, that's the thing I had, I had, I hadn't put that fully together in my head until this. But that, that's where they belong. So the interesting thing with them uh, always is. Uh, you know, I, I've honed in on this number over and over and over again, and it's LaMarcus Aldridge. And it's I keep trying to point out, like, this is a really interesting thing to talk about specifically because it's it, this reveals the value of plus minus in a way that gets past the problems with it, which is um, I am not saying that LaMarcus Aldridge is a bad player because his plus minus is bad. I am saying the Spurs do not work when LaMarcus Aldridge is on the floor and they work awesome when he is off the floor and that has been the trend um marcus Aldridge has played 21 games this season danny Mm -hmm. he's played 21 games this season the last three games he came off the bench so he played 18 games where he started how many of they in those do you think that they were a positive when he left the floor in the first quarter maybe two it comes down to a a little bit higher because some of them were like ones (laughs) but it was seven oh okay and what you have here, it's like 7 and 11. And with a lot of those is like they were just barely because – Oh, Patty and that's was, not in his minutes overall. That's in his minutes just in the first quarter. Yeah. Okay, but this is, okay. but this is, the, this is the one of the big things I've been getting at for the last two seasons. The Spurs start off in a hole every first quarter. They're down and have to dig their way out of it. They do because their bench unit is awesome. What's interesting is that like the actual starter numbers when you take LaMarcus Aldridge out are not great. Like The course of the game is better, but when LaMarcus Aldridge is out, they still struggle. They need a replacement for LaMarcus Aldridge, not to excise LaMarcus Aldridge. But yes, I'm with you in that the Spurs, I think the Spurs are, are really underrated. I think they're very good. They're good defensively again this year. They picked up that, and I think DeMar DeRozan has been fantastic. I love the way that he's making plays for everybody. Uh, I like what Keldon Johnson has brought, into the, brought to the team. I think that they are one move away involving LaMarcus Aldridge from being a team that could make a ruckus 
in a playoff series first round. Like I think they are very close to that, um, and they are going to be tough no matter what. So I'm with you on that. And I will a uh, quick a quick other note. I don't know that that they're going to do it, but I think the Spurs are my number one most interesting trade deadline team because they could go in like five different directions, and they could honestly do five all. They're they're not necessarily all mutually exclusive, you know, like. They could, Aldridge could be the focal point of something. They could do something with Rudy Gay, with Patty Mills. I think they're going to largely stay still, but there are so many different elements. And a big part of the the idea is thinking this front office, Wright and Buford and Pop, to the extent that he's in these conversations at this moment in time, is not how good is this team right now, but thinking about DeMar DeRozan could leave this summer. He'll They'll have bird rights, but we don't know what he wants. And do they think that this group of Murray and White and, and Lonnie Walker and Pirtle and Keldon and like, do they think that the, how much help do they think those guys need? And if you could like, if, if you want to say, if you say those guys are pretty good, they don't need a ton of help, then you probably ride this out a little more aggressively. But if you, if you think need to get more, they're too good to get a good draft pick right now. Yes, they have, the Spurs have justifiable faith that they can draft well later then maybe you start to, you know, you don't sell off the, you don't sell the farm, but maybe you sell off a few pieces to, to make yourselves better long-term. Yeah. So I have, uh, and there's a lot can go wrong quickly. It's a pretty wide group. Sure. So I have the Blazers with some teams I'm sure they would be insulted to be included with, but this is just where I feel they are. Um, I feel like their margin for error is very small. And I feel like to this, this point in the season, they have played either great enough to, to exceed a pretty wide margin of error, or they haven't been hit with a lot of games where the, a lot of things have gone wrong. They've had things mostly go right. Like they've survived a lot of minutes where we know that they're vulnerable. Um, the other teams are the Bulls, mm-hmm. the Knicks, the Pelicans, the Wizards, and the Hawks. Oh, so not the Grizzlies. Or did you have them as your above? No, I have them below. Interesting. I have them below. So my argument, well, we can get into them in a minute because there's only two teams in that in that group. A lot of it is that um, these teams, I feel like the Bulls, honestly, the Bulls and the Wizards are probably the two most undervalued teams right now in the NBA. And that's partly, I base that assessment based on the market. Um, the market's becoming wise to the Bulls. And so those lines are getting much, much sharper. But you were like the first half of the season, I was banking, just betting the Bulls every night um, because they're they would lose, but they would cover because they were better than what their spread was every sure. single time. Um, the Knicks, they have a pretty like a, a lot can go wrong for the Knicks if they get overwhelmed with talent. But their effort level is just so high, and Randall's performance and versatility is so good that like they have enough there to where it's like oh, they're going to make it tough for you, even if they, like a lot goes wrong, they'll make it tough for you. And then you have like the Pelicans, where it's if things fall off, they're terrible, but they are also the team that can beat the Jazz. Like, yeah, I, trying to make sense of the Pelicans is really tough because, again, they they either like they're honestly a lot like the they're the flip side of the Warriors, where the Warriors have played pretty well more times than they've played horrible, and the Pelicans have played horrible more times than they played pretty well. So that's the the combination. The Wizards, I think, are are just. I think the Wizards are much closer to a 500 team. Um, a lot of stuff went absolutely like the worst wrong for them. This like everything went wrong for them to start the season, which is why again, like a lot can can go wrong for them quickly. But now that they're back to like okay, things are the defense is evening out a little bit in terms of their shooting luck. Uh, they've gotten they started to figure out the offense a little 
a little bit more. They're getting like Bertans is no longer missing every single three. They're pretty decent. The Hawks are if fully healthy. The Hawks are a pretty decent team. Yeah, the Hawks, I think, depending on where, you know, you know more about the day to day lines than I do. But I, I think that in terms of general consensus, I think they're actually undervalued based on the idea that one of the big strengths of this team was supposed to be their functional depth. And basically all of those players have been hurt. And that is a that is a challenge. Now we don't know exactly when they're getting Hunter back, basically because now now it's been some of their injuries are higher on the chain, and so that's kind of sabotaged the lower part. But with Bogdanovich back, I feel more confidence more confidence in that. And the defense has been very good with Capella around. There is some shooting luck in that, but I think that there's some truth to it too. And yeah, I think that there's a cable team. I have the Hawks in tier five, but I I wouldn't be stunned to see them in tier four a little bit later on. But like for example, them compared to the Spurs, like the Spurs have shown a different level of capability to me overall. And there is there aren't these huge vacillations, especially now that the rotation the Spurs rotation is figured out. I kind of have them on the dividing line of this these last two groups. I have the Pelicans here too. I have the Grizzlies here. I have the Grizzlies here. Um Warriors, we already we've already discussed them. And the Knicks are interesting. Like I was I've been torn on them because the Knicks have been a great story and, and there's the, you know, sure, if you want the skept- the skepticism of like their defense isn't this good, but it is still good. Like that Jared Dubin and I, for people who want to go out there well, there are a lot of Knicks people who don't think who think I hate the Knicks, or it's like, no, I just think I think they're they're a capable team that just has played over their heads. And that's not a bad thing. That's just where they where I think they are. Um but at the same time, I think that they're you know, they're not the third best defensive team in the league, but they are still an above average, and that is a triumph. That is an absolute triumph for these these players, for Tom Thibodeau, for everything, really. But I still don't believe in their offense. Like they're, they're just it just hasn't really been there. You think about personnel and Julius Randle's been wonderful, but there are all these limitations, and if they're healthy, they can be better than they've been. And Derek Rose will help and all of these things, but it's just they're just not all the way there. And if they're a 10 to 15 defense and a bottom 10 offense, but maybe towards the bottom part of that or towards the top part of that bottom 10, that is still a pretty good team. A lot of it's just like, I think even if they're not as good as what the numbers indicate for, they can, I think they can get through the rest of the season. Oh, absolutely. And skate. The big, the big thing for them is not making the mistake they always make, which is like going too far on it, right? Like, oh, we're right there. No, you're not. You had a good season. You had a good season. Be patient. Like you're probably gonna take a step backwards like the Kings did. Don't get overzealous with with your pursuit of these things um you mentioned the grizzlies so they're in this tier with only there's only two teams and it's the the second the bottom tier and it's called good vibes only and it's hornets and grizzlies which is if the hornet if the if things go well they're fine if anything goes badly the team is is really in a tough spot yeah the, the you grizzlies can think honestly, of that as the tightrope is another way of putting it yeah like they're just it's very thin and uh, to look i think the grizzlies are exceptionally well coached which is one reason they've managed to avoid this shit like as much as they have like they've avoided trouble as much as they have is because they have they're exceptionally well coached. They're a young team that defends well. They give really good effort. They're deep. They have lots of ways to hit you. But when I look at them, I don't believe a lot of the metrics in terms of it holding out over the course of the season. Um, they need to get Jaron back, but Jaron's going to be in an adjustment. And I just think that overall, like they've had a lot of stuff go wrong for them this season. And they're still hanging in, which is admirable. But I still feel like game to game, they are very vulnerable night to night with what they need to go right and how little can go wrong for them. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think some of it is coaching that it has has moved me up into tier with them. Some of them is the adversity that they have overcome. And I mean, when you think about so one of the arguments for me in favor of the Grizzlies, so they've they've lost I think four of their last ten or so. The Bucks by one, totally fine, obviously. 
the Clippers, which they split, which was really impressive, though there was some availability stuff in those two games. And then the, the Mavericks, who I think are generally better, and we didn't talk about them a ton, but do that, and the Suns, who I think are great. And it's like, okay. Like they to me they're a team that can handle their business and yeah they've gotten their they've they've had other games where they got demolished and everything else. But I think that the Grizzlies are just they're they're a run of the mill all right team. But you're right that they kind of do it in a different way. My uh my last year is just the other team needs abject disaster. If everything doesn't go wrong for you, then you're gonna probably win. And that's Thunder, Kings, Rockets, Wolves, Pistons, Magic, and Cavs. Just like the whole slant. The Magic, I think, can, could, could have been out of this. They just got too many injuries. It's, right. It's yeah, like this, is the, this is the Magic as they are right now. Yeah, and, the, will, and the, Rockets are, the Rockets are honestly the same. I will hold on to this forever. Uh, they, are, they are like 9-3 and three when John Wall and Christian Wood play together without Harden. And they're 3-0 and oh when it's Wall and Wood and Oladipo. Like they could have been good and just too many injuries. Yeah, I have them. So I never really fully laid out my Tier 6 Oh, I should mention, yeah, so the, Bull, the Bulls were also in my Tier 5. We, we, we had already talked about them, so I didn't t- need to talk about them more. Uh, so my 6 is Rockets, Hornets, Wizards, and Kings. I actually theoretically could move the Wizards into 5. I understand your logic. Uh, I also, like, maybe they but they they were hurt in a way that I, I tried to look more forward than backward, but I guess I did price that in a little bit with them. Um, I probably shouldn't have the Kings out of the Cavs and Thunder and all, all, all the rest. Like, we had no disagreements in the rest of it. Um, but... I don't know. I'm just a little bit of a believer. I think there's a better team in here than they have been so far, but that might be a difference that is immaterial. I still like I had the Rockets and the Kings in this where it's like, then maybe there's like more good in them than some of these other teams, but maybe that's not fair because the Cavs have been, des- have been crushed by this Larry Nance injury, which in many ways is, you could say, argue their equivalent of the Christian Wood injury um, and all these other ones. So it, I had a little bit of trouble differentiating, but yeah, like the Wolves and the Pistons, it's going to be interesting also to see how the Pistons handle the rest of the season like um that was the that useful stat in terms of like so far they've played Detroit has played the second hardest schedule and they played the third easiest schedule the remainder of this season so I think that they have been better than like the record and all this kind of stuff but even so they still aren't very good right yeah even and I just feel like the most they just need a tank. Like they, I don't know why they give all of that money, and it's great that they've had Jeremy Grant. He's probably going to win most per player, but there's not a lot of value there. There's just not a lot of like upside for them to keep competing. So it's just like let's just play Sadiq Bay as much as possible and and kind of get out the door. The Cavs are the team I'm saddest about. I love that team for the first month of the season, and then they turn into one of my mirror teams, well, which is I, they take I, a look at them. I think but, it might be the best thing for them long term. Like that, yeah, I, ag- I agree with you in the short in the short term. It is immensely disappointing because it would have they could have easily been in the been in the mix, especially with some of these East teams not living up to expectations. Kind of been like where Charlotte is. I think that that's you know I think Charlotte has better talent, but not by that much. But if I were gaming out, if I were to say you say which thing is better for the Cavs over the next five years, being on the fringes of the playoff race, you know maybe losing in the first, maybe losing in the play in, and you know doing that or like just losing a crap ton of games and getting one more good pick, I would choose the latter every step of the way. Yeah, because Coro I think is going to be good. They've got a really good good base right now. Um, an interesting question for you is, should they trade Larry Nance Jr. or not? I would try to hold on to him unless somebody somebody really overvalued him. Like that, you know, if if you get, you know, like things that really move the needle, you know, I'm not talking about like mediocre first round picks or something like, let's say you got a a first round pick that had some real intrigue and a a young player who you thought could make a difference for you. Yeah, I think at that point I could pull the trigger. But outside of that, I mean, Nance, it's my evolution on him, but also Nance, he's improved as a player, but some of it is also like I've gained a greater appreciation for what he does well. 
I think that he is he is can be a part of the like the Cavs over the next couple of years, and also his contract is so reasonable, which is funny because I was so critical of it in time, and also as contracts have risen and as he's been better, so like Nance next year ten point seven million, the year after nine point seven million, as long as he can be on the court, that is a really good value contract. Nate compared it when we were doing we were doing a pod on this to like to Robert to like where Robert Covington was, not comparing that they're the same level of players, but the idea of like oh crap, a player of that level who's on a contract at 10 million or less, like there aren't that many players who fit that description. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, I, I, there's guys, that I think it's, it's interesting to gauge whether or not it's time to sell high or not. Like I think the magic should sell high on Bucevic. Oh, you're not absolutely. Get, you will not, you will not get better value than and you sell Bucevic, and right? sell high on him. Doesn't mean you're going to get like a haul. It just means right. that it's, it's not going to go that direction. Like sell high doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get everything you want. Like, it's not like the rockets with Harden necessarily. It's right. just, no. And then, and a lot of that's like, you know, don't take whatever Dan- Danny Ainge offers you. <laughs> for sure. we know that'll be bad, right? But, like, get a market for him and actively pursue trading him because, you know, holding on to him because it's like, well, he's our all-star. Yeah, but you're not going anywhere. Like, look at how well Vucevic has played this year, and you're still bad. That's how big – that's how small their room for error is, is that Vucevic can play like he has, and they still lose. Right, and I think there is there is a version of the ma- of the Magic that is legitimately like intriguing and competitive for next year. But that team is maybe winning a round in the playoffs, not doing everything else, and that probably involves Evan Fournier or get it doing really well with the mid level exception. And because the Magic are so expensive now with the, some of the commitments they've made, it's hard to imagine that team happening. And so if if that's your best case scenario and it's even faint at that then that's time to really rethink it. And, you know, defining, I, I use the phrase defining success a lot, and there's a very specific reason for it. And that's why ownership matters so much is it's very tempting to do the compete for the eight seed every year and see where it goes. And, and like, and it's, and as a general manager, you kind of in certain ways love an owner like that because it's like, it's very, it justifies you doing what you're going to do. But I think it can be really challenging for a franchise long-term. Like as a fan, that's not what I want. It's more of what I would want if I were a general manager. Yep. Uh, anything else kind of anything else big picture that you thought about here anything that surprised you when putting this together um i think the biggest surprise for me was honestly that i have i was a higher on teams than i think i would have been i think my bottom would have been more stratified but i was like no i think i think a pretty decent margin for error the teams have been you know there's a lot of clustering right now in the standings and that's i think reflective of what we're talking about here which is um, the error rate is higher this season because of the schedule, because of the testing of for COVID that's disrupting players' routines, because of injuries, um, no fans. Like the, there's just I think a lot of things go wrong night to night, and so I actually think teams have been fairly resilient given that I, I have more teams in kind of the top half than in the bottom half. I think it's um, I'm higher on the league maybe than I thought I was going in. Yeah, it's it's similar for me. I, I think that. I'm going to be fascinated with some of the really tough margin calls for me, how those look in two months, the Suns being an obvious one, Celtics, Knicks, you know, like, I think that I will I will be clarified. I will have clarity on those, but I don't know which way it's going to go. Right. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Love doing this with you, Danny.
Thanks again to Matt Moore for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at the Action Network. You can check out the BetCast that he does. And if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter at HP Basketball. Thanks again to Jack McCallum for coming on. You can check out the Dream Team tape, Season 2, focusing on the Redeem Team. Him and Jay Adande doing awesome work there. And you can listen to Season 1 if you haven't already and check out his written work, 7 Seconds or Less, Dream Team, Golden Days, and just so much other great great work that Jack McCallum's done over the years. Such a pleasure to have both of them on. I was extremely excited. You know, I'm sending out feelers at various moments in time for Real GM Radio and having both of them come to fruition at the same time, you know, each of them deserving their own moment in the sun, but fitting together. And because I have another great guest lined up for next week, it all it all fits together beautifully. I'm so thankful for both of them for coming on. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode, whether that's in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever it is, that is a great thing because this show will never come out on a specific day. That's just not the way it works with my availability, guest availability, this episode being a great example of that. So you just kind of have to do it that way. And I will continue to work my best to have to have great guests, to have new guests. Jack McCallum had never been on the show before. And and guests that I, you know, want to have on who have been on previously, like Matt, of course. And subscribing is a great way to do it, but also helping other people find the podcast. And that's leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player we're choosing, and also word of mouth saying, hey, this episode is great, or this series, or the podcast in general. I really do appreciate that, whether it's on social media or really wherever. Maybe it's a friend or something else. I really do appreciate that. Lots of other irons in the fire, as always, for those of you who know me. Took a little bit of time off for All-Star, but dunked on, still going strong. We actually released our top 10 prospects, which subscribers have had for a while. We released that as a free episode during the All-Star break, so now everybody can have access to it. So if you don't subscribe to Dunked on Prime, you can still get it, and then Dunked on Prime still going strong. We're returning with regular episodes. Now the games are back, so that's pretty exciting. And my written work is still at The Athletic working on a series of collaborative pieces and my own work kind of getting ready for the trade deadline, which is coming on really, really soon. So excited to get into all of that as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. I promise that I will take the time to read it. I'll try to reply. I might not. That is not my promise, but I will read it. That's the whole point of feedback and input is that, and if you send it that way, I do that after after every day. And then I sometimes save them for a little while to reply, um, but I read everything that comes into that inbox each day. It's a part of my like ritual, I guess you could say. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.